Thank you for tuning in. Imagine that there were work methods specifically developed based on universal principles of human interaction, which at their best embrace change and create a culture of high performance, continuous learning, and great design with less risk, and at their core value and respect people, while at the same time creating repeatable, robust, and informed processes and systems that build lasting value and help us to scale. While these do exist, even if we've not had or taken the time to critically think about or to explore them. Our topic today on the podcast is a look at different work methods, and our guest is a worldwide expert in lean, agile, and evolved leadership, Michael Sahota, founder and CEO of Shift314. And we both dig into and scratch the surface on what these well-established, but yet little understood by most of us, work methods could do for us in the context of our current state, which in many ways is less than ideal, if not filled with friction, inefficiency, increased risk, and missed opportunity. So often we make this work, but that doesn't mean we have to be locked into just what we know or what we've been taught forever, especially if there may be better ways to create more daily and hourly magic and turn our talent gap into a true strength and catalyst for our future growth and success. My hope is that this episode helps us to take a step back and to critically and strategically think about or rethink about the way we work and consider how making adjustments can position us to more rapidly and effectively solve more complex problems in a much more collaborative way with less turbulence and confusion and do so with greater employee and client outcomes and experiences. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Michael Sohoto, founder and CEO of Shift314, and we'll be talking about agile and agile design and leadership. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thanks for having me here. Well, I'm excited for you to be here, and um, partly because this topic is is new, um, and or, or certainly a newer subject um, topic in in our industry, the AEC industry. Um, and, and as we begin, uh, I wanted to just frame this up a little bit and sort of start to introduce you in the process. Um, the idea, the concept, the practice of agile came out of the software development industry, which, which is your background. Um, so you can speak directly into that and how it's grown and developed. Um, but as it has grown and developed and evolved, it, it has become a little bit of a buzzword. And so we need to be more agile as leaders. We need to be more agile as organizations, which I hope with your help today, we can help define exactly what that means. Um, number two, Agile is a very people and team-centric way of working with 
you know, clear outcomes, clear deliverables defined, and those delivered over a set defined time frame, which is certainly not what has historically happened in AEC. Um, but I think something that's being craved in the industry and something I think that lines up really well with, you know, our evolution to more decentralized work. And then you add on the hybrid component, people being physically together for shorter bursts of time, which I think we need to think about and evolve around versus today, a lot of the work and design work that we're doing uh, is maybe characterized a little bit more of sort of fits and starts and, you know, folks that, you know, I have a meeting on one project, but I'm actually working on two other projects. And when I get to start working on that first project, I'm kicking off a fourth project. And the team that I'm working on with that fourth project is actually working on a fifth and a sixth project. So it, it, it's a little bit of a sort of a chaos in that sense. But obviously, we've worked through it real well. But is there a better way? Sort of the third kind of intro point here um, to sort of frame up our discussion today is that, and I mentioned this a little bit, you transitioned from a doer role, you know, really kind of being an expert software developer introduced into the world of agile. Um, but then you transitioned into the leadership and management world, got involved with organizational development, you know, in the, for, in, in the organizations that you worked with, then you transition to an outside consultant, helping, helping firms, you know, look at different ways to work and evolve that way. Um, and, but I want to make the point here that you've made in our previous conversations that um, as it relates to leadership, you know, organizational change, that 100% starts with leadership change, which 100% starts with individual leaders wanting to change and evolve their organizations. And, I know just kind of getting a little deeper here, but I think it, it opens up the context for this discussion on change and change management, new ways of working, that when we think about ourselves as individual leaders, you know, I know that you've been on a leadership, you know, um, journey and had sort of epiphanies along the way. And, and I have the same and, and so many leaders that I know that are very successful have sort of had this sort of epiphany and they've, they've completely changed the way they looked at leadership, which has changed the way that they can lead. And so, although I sort of our personal journey is not really the focus of this, I, I just want to remind us all as we're starting to look at, think about new ways of working, that each of us individually, depending on our disposition, we're either holding back change or we're sort of enabling change. And, and I will say, speak probably in general for leaders, but certainly in this industry, there's no malice if we're holding back change. A lot of times it's just we're busy and consumed. Um, we're just doing what we've been taught. Um, and, you know, we just, here we are, we, we want to sort of um, talk about change and we want to think about change in new ways. So all that being said, I am super excited to dive into design uh, or agile design, agile leadership, um, agile team organizations, um, and then sort of broad, you know, broader, you know, look at what agile is. But before we do that, is there anything else on your background or just thinking about thinking of thinking about thinking about changing the way we do work that uh, would be good to talk about before we dive in? Yeah, thank you so much for that great introduction. You know, fantastic, uh, really summary right there. Um, the one thing I would add is that I, I really don't see any difference between industry types or even, I mean, there's some variation and so on, but 
Agile actually was designed as this, you know, how can we deliver projects successfully? How do we get rid of 90% of the common risks and projects and how we get rid of them? So it's really in some ways a, a way to approach projects in a healthier way. And going de- even deeper into that, Agile is based on lean principles. And lean comes from uh, Toyota production system, which was designed for both new product development, design, as well as manufacturing, right? So I think everything that we're talking about here, I, I, I don't see any, any difference. And really the work that I do around the world of helping organizations build high performance, it, the industry doesn't matter. The, the, the country doesn't matter. The, the culture doesn't matter because we're talking about universal principles of how human beings work together. And it turns out most companies have human beings in them. Right. Well, that's that's a great segue because I wanted to sort of level set, um, if you will, or at least get us on the same page about a number of terms that we often hear, um, but probably don't understand the full meaning of. And so I was hoping that we could talk about, or just if you could give like an overview, briefly just define the basic terms and maybe how they're categorized and linked together. But what lean, Kaizen, Six Sigma, Agile, Kanban, Scrum, how does, I mean, maybe just a, a way to sort of get us on the same page. What, what are all of those? And, and obviously we're going to dive a little bit more into the Agile piece of that today, but but, but can you, you know, give us a little bit of a background on all these different ways to work? Yeah, so I'll just, I'll just touch on those briefly. So, so lean is the westernized, misunderstood interpretation of the Toyota production system, which is we can consider that ground truth of what actually works. So people um, did a very good job, not a great job, not an amazing job, but they, they kind of missed the essence. Because what happened when the West sort of tried to commoditize lean as the wisdom from Toyota, they lost that on the essence. They lost that on the consciousness, on the mindset, and they focused on the practices, like eliminating waste and things like that. But if you really look at the core of, of uh, the Toyota production system, the, the core of it is valuing people this deep, deep respect for people, which then ties in with leadership and how are leadership treating people, right? So there's a very deep cultural um, connection with people. And if you look at this Kaizen, which is this core practice or continuous improvement is the westernized term. That means in your organization, people's input on improving how things work on a daily basis is welcomed. So it's a very simple measurement. You can look at your organization. Are people's inputs for how to make things better welcomed on a daily basis? That's a very, so in in Western terms, do you have a learning culture? Is there a time code in your time system for learning? Is there a time? Because here's the deal. When organizations spend time getting better and and preparing for the future, the future is better. And most organizations fall in the trap of just focusing on the right now and, you know, then our future turns out uh, correspondingly poorly. So um, those are those terms, Kaizen, Lean. And then um, Six Sigma is this, this total um, processification of this, what was really originally a culture of learning into try to standardize everything. So it's, I'd actually say, um, or my understanding, I'm not a, a Six Sigma expert, but it's lost the essence of it, which is to involve people and their creative wisdom to make things better. And without that, you know, it really just turns this massive mechanical exercise of standards and processes and, and oppression where people are following processes that don't make sense. 
instead of actually having them involved in changing the process and moving to lighter weight processes that are the minimum process needed to create a creative, valuable outcome. Well, excellent. And you said, you mentioned that Agile sort of came out of Lean. Can you um, kind of open yeah. up the door a little bit on, on Agile? And I think Kanban and Scrum are associated with Agile, if that's sure. correct. Maybe you could kind of talk about those two. Yeah, let me, let me go through that. So Agile really is this umbrella movement of people who said, well, hey, look, all these really heavy structured processes don't lead to great outcomes. They just don't. All these waterfall processes, all these focus on time and budget and trying to make things happen. And that doesn't work. What we want to do is we want to create lightweight processes that allow people to show up to do their best, allow people to learn, allow people to get better, allow people to adapt to new information. So Agile is this philosophical movement of putting people first, of creating environments where we respond to new information instead of just following plans blindly. And we all have been in on projects like that. So that's really Agile's a philosophy uh, at its core. It's a, it's a cultural mindset of valuing people, of valuing learning, valuing adaptability, um, and, and so on. But people have a hard time with that. So the more practical answer is Agile's a family of different processes, right? That's kind of the more mundane starting point. That's what people really, when they first think of Agile, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a, a lightweight process, right? I mean, so that's kind of true. And... So there's no agile process. They're just different kinds of processes that align with this agile umbrella. One of the most popular one in the world is called Scrum, um, which is this idea of like, hey, let's get together. And every two weeks or every four weeks or every one week, whatever the time interval is, we'll get together as a team and we'll build something valuable. But we'll work together as a team. We don't have individual goals. We work together towards what's most valuable. Um, and then Kanban is a very, very popular variant of agile, which is much more closely tied with lean, which is much more coming from this uh, visualize it, visualizing the work um, and using tickets to represent work, to limit the amount of work in process so that the team can actually navigate and manage the work. So Kanban is a very, very lightweight starting point where anybody can just implement Kanban on top of their existing process. It doesn't require you to change your process. It just gives you the ability to visualize and improve your process and create conversations to make it better. So it's really the um, kind of the lowest friction entry point to a different way of, of functioning. But again, unless there's a desire to really invest in making performance better, unless there's a desire to create space for people to have time to learn and grow and evolve, unless leaders can actually create an environment to support that, um, and co-create and participate in that process, it's not really going to work very well. Right. How, I mean, so in, in our industry, right, we have, I mean, there are real constraints. Um, there, there, there's codes, you know, there, there is some fixed budgets and fixed schedules we need to work with. <clears throat> and as much as we like to say we're collaborative, at the end of the day, it's con very contractual, you know, so, so there are these real constraints happening. But, but that being said, um, I, I think clients want to collaborate more. Um, there's, there's, you know, we have a vision of what this project should look like, but there's all kinds of different ways to get there. There's just different changes as far as, um, you know, electrical efficiency, energy efficiency, different materials, there's different ways to sort of build and design these things. So that's adding complexity. We've got different talent gaps in our industry where, um, you know, th there's a lot of senior talent and a lot of very junior talent, but there's a very little middle. Uh, and, and part of that is, you know, the great, recession 10 to 15 years ago, we lost a lot of people 
who would today would have 10 to 15 years experience. Either we lost them or they didn't come into our industry. So we've got this sort of hourglass shape so that the talent doesn't sort of flow down the typical pyramid structure, you know, that most of us, you know, came up with. And, and I mentioned the new technology and, and plus different cross-functional inputs. So I think there's, there's a desire to maybe we need to do something differently and maybe a requirement. All that being said, when we think about these different processes and systems and mindsets, I mean, does anything come to your mind as far as what might be for design professionals um, in the, the creative industry, of all these methods and mindsets, what, are there ones that you think are most applicable? Yeah, so this is a great question. I, I just want to pause that question and just you touched on something really, really critical, which is uh, contracts. The biggest secret of Agile is that nobody wants a project on time, on budget. What they want actually is a project that delivers on their needs. And there's this myth that if we follow the contract, we deliver the contract, then the customer will be satisfied, their needs will be met. And anybody who's delivered a project knows that's simply not true. So agile is a shift from customer uh, contractual negotiation to customer collaboration. And what that means is actually a, a rewriting of contracts to provide variability and change so that it's not a scope timeline driven project. I mean, those are constraints that will be met if they, as, as, as depending on relative importance, but that they the focus on a happy customer outcome. Right. And, and if I look at what's typically happening for contractual models today, especially in the, uh, what I've seen of the, uh, the, you know, the, this, you know, building industry, it's horrific. It's actually designed to, to prevent collaboration It's designed to prevent change. And we all know change happens. So we're talking about moving towards a different mindset of change friendly activities. Right. So, so, so again, it's not rocket science. It's like, well, what are we going to focus on? The contract, meeting the contract, or making the customer happy, and it's like, well, wait a second, make the customer happy. You're going to get repeat business, and it, and so on, and of course, like all sorts of procurement things make it challenging for that. So, well, I, I'm well aware. Well, of that. I mean, well, that's I mean, that's a that's a great. I, I appreciate you bringing that up because that is sort of parallel with the shift towards client experience, the whole uh, art and philosophy and even science to some degree around, you know, what are the client's expectations and how do we create a better experience as we're delivering? So this is, you have this, this idea of what well, we would increase our client experience. And there's also got the other side of the coin is the, our, our employer, our employee experience, but this is sort of a tangible way with, okay, if we want to do that, how about we change the way we design to actually create that experience not just by what we say and what we want to do, but by, by how we're actually doing the work. So I appreciate you bringing that in. Yeah. So just, just a real simple soundbite, employee experience trumps customer experience. If your people are not being looked after, they can't look after your customers. I 100% Second of all, agree with that. Any, anything that you say that you do around customer experience is mostly just smoke and noise unless you actually fix your contracting model. Because if your contract model is broken, the customer experience will be broken. It's that simple. So, um, so right. and even if we're but, are, but so, I mean, to your point though, but even if we're locked into contracts, because you know state agency X or client you know um, Y forces us to sign this contract, we could still execute it a little differently, and we could still have conversations. I mean, so the, the, even within the sort of signed contract, the way you execute work and set expectations and deliver the product 
to meet the needs. There's still flexibility, but it requires a higher level of leadership and probably principal management it, discussions. It actually requires hacking the contract, like not in very, I mean, it's, it's very, very simple ways to say, look, this is the plan of record. We will absolutely deliver on this plan. And this is the thing. It's not about getting written, not about fighting the contract. Say, and if you want to change it and we both agree, we can make changes to it. Bazinga, right? Because then three months in the project, when everyone realizes it's not going to work, both sides, they go, why don't we make this change? We'll take this out of scope. We'll add this in scope. You'll get more of what you want. Our costs are the same. And we're just here to make you successful and happy. And they'll go like, oh my gosh, can you do that? And you go, yes, it's in the contract. So that's what I'm saying. We, we, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, well, and there are, there, there are, you know, there's a contract negotiation at the beginning, right? Which, which is based on probably some preliminary work or some proposal type work where you, you sort of can come up with something and, and, and the better it is when you come up with it, um, the thought process, the better it's going to be. And then you, the design, but then there's the concept design, the preliminary design that there's different places along the way where we definitely can revisit that. So I guess revisiting it in, in a more enlightened way, thinking about the design process is, is a key here. But when we think of that, so, I mean, this is where <clears throat> we have a very traditionally, a very defined process there is a, and maybe we, maybe let's define waterfall because there is a very sequential flow to a lot of what we do. And maybe it's because it's the best way to do it, or maybe it's because just the way we've historically done it. And that's the way it's tied to the contracts right, back when, but, but there is, can you define waterfall? Because there's this sequential nature, but even within that, I, I, and I do want to dive into how is sort of this agile framework work within sort of a waterfall process? Yeah, so, so that's great. So, so this is actually the kind of the roots of where sort of the whole agile movement came from. Is people were building projects using a waterfall process. Waterfall means you go in one direction, like the water just goes down. You never go back. There's, you know, that's the really we can call it the fiction of reality. We create this fiction of reality where the work only goes in one direction, and we know exactly what we're doing at every step. So first we do our requirements. What is it we need to build? Then we do some analysis on it. Do you know maybe come up with some concepts and so on. Then we do the design for it, and then we do construction. And construction just proceeds. You know, there's no questions that come up, no surprises that come up during construction. Construction always just flows so smoothly. I mean, I mean, this is the myth that everything just flows so smoothly. But anyone who's done any project ever knows there's always change. There's always rework. There's always stuff that happens. I'll give you an example from Lean. Toyota set aside 20% budget automatically so that any engineer could make any change they needed to to build a successful product. That they could just immediately, they didn't have to renegotiate the contract. They could just immediately make the changes they needed to create a successful outcome because they know based on history, that's the amount of change required. So we know there's change coming in our projects. We should be budgeting for it and build that into the process at a minimum, even if we're using waterfall, that'd be a very quick way to fix waterfalls. Say, look, we're going to do rework. But the truth is, and I don't know what it's like in your industry, but in software projects for these big projects, it's like it's called the, um, the the whirlpool, this big churning mess at the end of the waterfall, right? Where you try to clean up all the different mistakes that have happened before it and do all this last minute rework and catch up. And and that's what that's what often happens is all and, and, and everyone knows what percentage rework there is on these projects. And it's not insignificant. And so the idea with Agile is, well, let's build in a process that treats that as the first class citizen. Instead of pretending it's not there, let's actually integrate that and you work, 
create a process in ways that minimize the rework, that actually treat in, integrate the rework and the process as part of the overall design and build. So that in, instead of trying to do a little, like trying to treat flow everything together, we'll do some, some sort of concept, we'll do some sort of design, we'll do some sort of build. And of course, if you're going to do it um, with physical, you might do it more with just, you know, software modeling of this is conceptually what it'll look like. So more and more things to be done ahead of time. And you're going to need to do more upfront when you can't reverse things easily, like when you're doing construction to get it right. But it means spending more time with tools to visualize, help the client understand what they're getting to, um, to really focus on based on historical projects, where are the risks, what are the integration risks, what are the, the construction risks that we face and help the people who are running that project focus on those to eliminate those so that you get the least amount of rework possible. Right. And, not, and, yeah. It's about using people's intelligence in a way. Right. Well, and, and the whirlpool happens, right. For in, in, in AEC too. And, and the, and the, it does happen at the end. And what it does is it delays project completion. It adds, adds to the frustration and the friction and, and teams that are supposed to move on to the next project can't, they're stuck onto this one. And it's sort of a profitability sink you know, in a whirlpool, because now we're doing all kinds of different things. And, you know, and, and we're sort of losing money at the, you know, because a lot of us, you know, we will get the project done, and it will look real good. And but but it's going to come at sort of our expense of moving on to the next project and sort of maybe our even our profitability and our frustration levels within our teams. So maybe yeah. the clients mo more often than not probably gets what they're looking for. Assuming at the you know the end we sort of see everything in the whirlpool spinning around. But um, that being said, if, if we want to avoid that, what what it, how would you think in, in different phases we would integrate this into a sequential? You know, any sort of yeah. it, you know we talked up a little bit about the advantages and sort of the disadvantages, but but any sort of practical ways you've seen industries take on these principles like within a sequential process. Yeah. So, so the funny answer is that the answer is not where you think the answer is. And the answer actually comes in actually having people working in what's more closely understood as cross-functional teams. And when you have teams, it means that people move away from individual deliverables to how do we all build this and create this together? And this ties in with something you mentioned earlier about this hourglass shape of very experienced people and very junior people. And what happens is when you don't have a learning culture, which is most organizations, most organizations do not have a learning culture, because what happens is when there's a very challenging project, it goes to the most senior person, right? And the juniors are not even involved. So they have zero ability to learn and gain new skills or capability. But when you start to move towards a cross-functional team where learning is valued, there's time for learning, it means that the juniors suddenly start having access to seeing what's going on. They get chances to design things. They get somebody there to either do, do it with them, sitting side by side called pairing. That's the agile activity, two people working together in the same activity, which leads to incredible knowledge sharing, incredible learning. So because so, your team is going to go, like your productivity level is limited by your juniors. That's what's limiting your productivity level. So when you have a learning environment, you're pulling up all the juniors. So they're operating and are able to contribute a lot more, which is going to increase your profitability dramatically, right? But, but that requires a shift from this idea of, well, I'm going to give these most challenging things to the senior people, the junior people get the, you know, the more you know, easier stuff that's maybe not so interesting and so on. And what it does is it kind of cracks the code on how do we elevate the skills of all of our people? How do we work 
together to create the maximum outcome. And then what you need to start to do that is you don't have six projects going on at the time at once. You might have one or two and you just have the team handling all the activities for those projects instead of having, you know, six concurrent projects and people talking about different things in different times. And there's so much waste from all this context switching and massive numbers of projects going on simultaneously. And why do you need so many projects going on simultaneously? Well, because they all take so long. And what happens when you move to an agile way of working is things get done a lot faster because everyone is there that needs to be there and can work fully on whatever needs to happen to get that project finished and the next one flowing in. And of course, there'll be some different stages of project maturity and so on. But when you have mature teams, um, what they do is they might say, well, we're, we're working on this, this project in this phase and we're working on this other you know, costing thing and we're working on this you know, sales pitch over here. But the, the work goes to the team, right? And right now, the model is completely backwards in most environments that are waterfall, which is like, well, I've got this project. Who do I assign to this project? I'm going to assign Joe 20% and Mary 30%. And I need this person's skills. So I don't have that. I'm going to contract. And, and it's like, we're, we're trying to move the people to the work instead of moving the work to the people. And so this is a fundamental reversal that happens when people move to an agile environment, which supports building a learning culture, supports collaboration, supports um, really having people be able to work together and, and co-create their best work. Right. Well, I mean, I think that that ties, and, and that's like, that is <clears throat> articulating the craving that I think exists within most organizations to have some simplicity with, these are the projects I'm working on. I can, we can really advance these and then, you know, get them done right with the right people at the right time, and then move on to the next projects and, and, you know, less chaos, but, and, and there, there, there is this, um, and, and that gets into sort of time management, um, project management, workload management, and, you know, things that are just, I think, less than ideal, if not broken today. And I think, you know, what you just described is, is sort of a, a, a better state, but I wanted to dive, you mentioned pairing and, you know, where's, when I talk to, leaders and people within organizations, there's just such desire for coaching and mentoring and better delegation, which is going to involve teaching and collaboration. You mentioned pairings. Can you dive talk a little bit more about what this pairing looks like in an agile yeah, environment? So, yeah. So there's a there's an, a, a variant of agile called extreme programming. He said, well, let's find out all the things that will help us be successful and let's turn the knob up to 11. Let's really, really do these things well. And what happened out of that was a, a, an approach called pair programming, where two people would sit, two developers would sit down together and they'd write code together, right? And, and what happened out of that is the quality goes up dramatically. The level of learning goes up dramatically. So uh, it's actually an incredible, incredible practice for uh, learning and creating quality, quality work. Now, the biggest challenges, and it's not a commonly used practice in the agile world these days. And the reason is, is because people have to get their egos out of the way. The senior people have to be open to saying, yes, I'm ready to learn too. And just because you're young and, and bright, you may have some good ideas and I, I, I'm open to learning from you. And that's, 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 a, that's a culture shift right there. So um, what else needs to be in place? We need to have a high level of psychological safety. Because for me to admit that I don't know something and, you know, I mean, we're, we're pretty, pretty much vulnerable and open if we're really going to work with someone closely like that. So there's a lot of cultural support needed for a leader to create a safe environment and help people where this kind of activity can work. But when you have it working 
And I had worked in environments where people are pairing, not just developer, 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 analyst, different roles, just people working together on the same work product at the same time. Because it gets rid of the need for all these review cycles and all these other things that we do on that take up so much time because we have two people looking at the same thing. And, and you know, here's the amazing thing that can happen. When both people don't know the answer, on their own, they never put up their hand and go ask for help. But when they're working together, neither of them know, then it's safe because somebody else doesn't know as well. So therefore it's safe and they can go ask for help. So it creates just a very powerful structure for a lot of very healthy habits in the, the work environment. I, I, I like that. And, and from a cross-functional perspective, yeah, okay, we need some help with the, the mechanical and the civil or working this, we need someone from the electrical and now we're gonna bring them in because we're working on this piece. Um, and, and I, I want to kind of then just describe Scrum a little bit and then kind of talk about teamwork. But before we do that, like the, the pairings, and we talk about senior and junior folks, <clears throat> if, it's a, if it's a senior structural engineer and a junior structural engineer, and, and there is this sort of, well, I do know how to do this and I could do it on my own, but, but maybe, you know, I, I want to develop the team. But, but there's another element at play here, which is the whole, like, you know, the the digital native versus the, you know, the analog, you know, as far as the, the way we look at technology and see technology world that, you know, the digital natives, those under 35, you know, see the world differently. It might have better access and in, in use of technology versus I'll, I'll say the, the analogs who are North of 35, who, you know, technology is maybe it's just something we've learned to deal with, but, you know, I can do it all on my own and I'll write it all out if I have to, which I think there's the humility and even someone who's got 25 years experience versus someone who's five, just the digital gap should be something we could learn from, you know, let alone just wanting to, you know, bring out the best in people and, and develop our organizations who in, in our case has very little middle. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And even two senior people working together or two juniors working together, leads to immense learning because what happens people start picking up these tricks and they, techniques they go oh, i didn't know that trick and go yeah that's right i do this all the time because the, the learning starts to go up all these little shortcuts that make everybody more productive and even two senior people working together can create something much more amazing than either one of them on their own which might end up saving a whole bunch of money on the project could save up a whole bunch of construction time. Like it, you don't know what's going to come out until you actually do it. The level of creativity and innovation goes way, way up. And you might think, well, we're just building this routine, blah, blah, blah. But, but here's the deal. Innovation is part of every single action. It's not a separate initiative. Innovation is part of daily work. And when there's space and time and capability where this can happen, that's when the magic happens. That's when your firm goes from being an ordinary firm to an extraordinary firm. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned the daily work. And I, and I would, um, you know, I've seen this work fabulously from my early days um, at working from a, like a well-known, you know, um, firm. There were these technical advisory teams that would come in at the beginning and in different deliverables. And you would talk about what's being done and they would brainstorm. You had the right people at the room, the junior people, the senior people, the outside people. And it was magic, two hours of magic. But then you'd all go to your corners until the next deliverable, right? And, and I've also seen this play out in like what's called value engineering assignments, where it's like, hey, you know, we, we had a $15 million budget, but the price came in and it was $25 million. So we not getting more money. So how do we value engineer this project to fit within our budget? 
And there's just brilliance as far as, you know, we're not, not going to strip out the insulation because it's not going to be an arm and a leg to operate this thing. And, but we're going to keep these things. But how do we look at materials? How do we look at, you know, delivery? How do we, and like magic happens in, in a few day period, but then everyone goes back to the corners, but, but you're talking almost that magic daily. Exactly. That magic hourly, that magic daily. Like let's get people working together to be at their best and co-create, right? And 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 I think you know even office design, you know people are designed to be working in their own little cubicle. I mean, you know it, it's just it's just horrific what happens to to prevent collaboration, right? right? It's almost like the whole structures are anti-collaborative, and it's like, well, but wait a second, don't people do better work when they work together? But, but, but again, we have this whole mindset of efficiency. No, 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 no. We need to carve out the, ta- I mean, this part comes back to waterfall. Like everything fits hand in glove. Comes back to waterfall. Well, we have a project. It has a bunch of work in it. We break down the work and we assign the work to people, right? This whole work breakdown structure is waterfall, is the enemy of people working together, is what's lowering your performance, Right. And even if they're, it's not quality. your friend, your work, work is, is actually what's causing you to have lower performance, lower innovation, lower growth. Right. And even if there's personal time to reflect, to process, to grow, but it's when we come together to schedule more of that and, and, and not just be the meeting where everyone's reporting, this is my progress and I'll go back to my corner and I'll report the next project next. I did, before we get into kind of team and team design and thinking about, you know, high trust teams, can you talk a little bit about what Scrum is and how does Scrum work? Is Scrum like just two people for two weeks working together? Is it a broader team? I mean, it, and it will be a lot of iteration yeah, Scrum, on that, but, but what is it? What is, what is your, your thought of yeah. Scrum in the context of what we're talking about? Well, let's imagine you have a big project. Um, uh, even if it's just a project phase, a design phase, let's say for a large, large uh, construction or something is bring everyone together, bring the whole team together, all the skills you need together, a, a team, you know, seven plus or minus two people that have all the skills you need. Maybe you have some people that you treat as consultants that are external and so on. And you get together for two days and you say, let's map out all the work we need to do to complete all the different design activities. Everything. What do we need? What are all the technical things we need to figure out? What are all the risks? They map it all out until they, everybody in the room can put their arms around all the work. They say, great, let's now start sprinting. We'll go in one week sprints or two week sprints. It's like an iteration. Let's iterate for one week or two weeks. We'll, okay, beginning of this week, what do we want to accomplish out of all this backlog, all this list of work? Let's tackle these things. They're the most important, the highest risk. Boom, we work through them. At the end of the week, we look and say, well, what do we get done? What do we learn? What do we tackle next week? And you just keep on going like that. Week one, week two, week three, until you burn out, through, burn through all the work and it's all done. Or a new project comes in, you add that to your queue and you start mixing in the old project with the new project and you know you keep on going. So the team just keeps on going. So in that case, that's, that's a lot that's of the teams sort of stay together and, and that after yeah. each of these little mini deliverables is the after action review, what could we do differently? And we'll apply that to the next one. And um, Exactly. You keep so, the band together. You keep the band together. Right, right. And, and in this case, I mean, we do integrate, you know, there are people who... I don't want to just be, well, when we're more senior and, you know, sometimes our expertise is our value. So we get to a certain point in our career where I want to keep working on this because I want to develop deep expertise and that is my differentiation, but, but younger folks, you know, I, I want a wide foundation, right? So they might want to be integrated in. So can there be some integration and change of teams in this process? Yeah. So, or- yeah, so there's different answers. I mean, the typical in the agile is you tend to have relatively stable teams. 
and like the team tackles this kind of work, this kind of construction project, this kind of, and, and so on. Um, but within that, there are deep specializations. Some of them are very specialized because when you have deep specialists working together, that's when you have all the knowledge needed to deliver the whole product. So it's not about being anti-specialization. It's more about, well, please, can everyone make sure they have some really good deep specialization plus be able to help out with something else. So if there's some critical path item, you're not going to work at your full best scale area, but it's going to get the team unblocked and it's going to allow this thing to be finished to, which will actually improve. It's like, it's like in a restaurant in a restaurant, right? The best restaurants, you know, the staff can, you know, greet people when they come in and to seat them at tables, they can, they can um, serve food at tables. They can help out in the kitchen. Those are the best staff because then that way, whenever the, wherever the bottleneck is, they can make sure that that thing happens. So when you see a people who have an agile mindset as an individual, you get an agile team because the team is more flexible and adaptable and can actually meet the, the needs. But when everyone says, no, 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 I only, I only wash windows. You know, I, I only, I only serve on tables. I only greet people. Like when you go that, that, that sort of ego based narrow mentality of, I only do this. That's the enemy of collaboration. That's the enemy of high performance. I mean, you might have that, but those people are not your keepers. They're the, I mean, you might want to lock them in a corner and get them to do whatever they're good at, but they're not team players. They're not going to help you get to high performance. Right. And it's not moving towards where the direction of most people want to be part of teams and, and, mm-hmm. and operate at high levels. And, and, and most clients want the best out of everybody, right? I mean, there, yeah. there, there are those people, right? And, and we're going to keep them, but at the same time, we necessarily want more of them. <laughs> you know, we want to create more of a team. How we, when we think about the the need for these sort of teams, and 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 we've talked about the continuing learning culture, um, and you, but how how do we think about developing these teams and, and identifying who the best team is for for those projects? And, and then I'd like to just talk about um, you know some of the business aspects of of agile. But but how can you how do how do we best select the teams? Well, I mean, the question ties in with how does the whole management system function, right? And usually we're in a traditional command and control hierarchy where the people who are, hold the power make the decisions and they might get a little bit of input from other people. But, um, and that's actually the enemy. That, that's actually the thing that's creating low performance. Unless the leadership actually shifts their mindset and they model a learning culture and they model collaboration, all of what we're talking about, and this is a very common trap with Agile, Agile means go fix our teams. Well, all this stuff is not going to really fully work on your teams until the leadership makes the shift first. So that's actually probably the, one of the big Agile traps right there. Um, but you know, I mean, assuming your leadership has crossed that Agile trap of thinking that it has nothing to do with them and they, they're fine. I mean, this is the default assumption. I'm, as a leader, I'm fine. I'm good. I don't need to grow, but go fix my people. That's like the, the, the huge trap. But imagine, let's say you have leadership that have evolved. They've, they've uh, shifted how they show up. They've worked through their ego issues. They're shifted how they treat people as human beings and so on. They're collaborating. They're learning. They're growing. Um, then what in that situation, structurally, what they do is probably have a, a co-created work. Well, actually, most likely the best option is a co-creation workshop where you get people who are on the teams to decide for themselves what teams they should be on. Um, but it depends in part on the level of maturity of the people, the level of responsibility of the people. Because what you're really talking about is a decision that's trying to create the best outcome for every individual and the best outcome collectively for the whole organizational system. So as you can sense that, different individuals might have different personal preferences 
that would be more optimized for them rather than the whole system. So usually the way that I've tackled that is having these co-creation workshops where we get everyone together. We talk about what's, what's the incoming work, what are the different team designs that we could do, and what do we collectively think will serve our system best? So you're using the wisdom of the people to create the best um, sort of architectural skeleton for staffing. Who's on which team? Right. Well, excellent. And, and, it, and that gets into, you know, a, a lot of the different elements that, you know, as leaders and managers, we need to think differently at, at, and not be on autopilot and, and figure out what the best approach is. Well, How- like, the, the, the amount of it's hard for teams to go through this and learn what they need to do. It's even harder for leaders. Right. So unless leaders are listening to this and they're really ready to say, well, wait a second. Yeah, I'm ready to make the change myself probably the answer is don't bother with this agile stuff. I'll just make it really clear. I mean, you could do it. You could get some benefit, 10, 20% and so on, but you're not really going to get the the huge shift in performance, the huge shift in culture, the huge shift in employee engagement, unless you as a leader are ready to make some changes yourself. And that's a great, I mean, that's a great point. And that's with almost any forum of organizational development that, it has to be really wanted by those at the top to sort of to work through all the stuff they're going to have to run through to make the change. I mean, there's not just wanted, not just wanted. Wanted is the minimum. They need to want it and put in the effort to to work mm-hmm. on themselves. So it's because wanting is fine. That's bait. That's table stakes. But they need to actually do the work. Right. And push through but, all the resistance they're probably going to get at all different levels from really good wait, people along push the way. Through, no, no, no. They need to push through their resistance to working on themselves. Hmm. The people outside are not the problem. I mean, there's a truth. You can't change anyone else. You can only change yourself. So the problem is not your people. The problem is not out there. The resistance that you're perceiving is caused by you pushing your agenda instead of listening to people and working at a rate of change that they're comfortable with. So I do want to kind of tap, tap into that a little bit more, but one of the things I, I wanted to make sure we get to is, is from a business perspective, um, how do you, how have you seen organization, how do you price agile work differently or, or do you not? It's just sort of an efficiency within the process. And, and do you see that? And then, so that was kind of one, how do you might price this work a little differently? Maybe it's just higher value. So you, you it's outcome collaboration. So you actually have better pricing and positioning power. Um, so that kind of question one, and then I, I wanted to talk about how you see hybrid remote work from anywhere changing historically what real good agile practices are. Yeah, so it's a great question. So first of all, Agile does increase your performance. But most of all, what increases is the quality of the outcomes to make sure you're actually building what's needed. So there's there's a savings that comes with that. But the biggest value really is about reimagining the customer relationship model. So it moves away from one of adversity and and uh, to one of like true collaboration where the contracts are lined up to create that collaboration. So out of that, what would emerge is either like um, uh, a much better uh, outcomes and experiences that allows a, a premium to be charged for one services because the outcomes are way better than anybody else's outcomes. That'd be one, one aspect. Another aspect would be you're going to get higher productivity because you're now creating an environment where people are more engaged at work. You're creating an environment where the level of engagement goes up. So as a result, the, the performance, the outcomes increase. 
that would be that would be the other the other answer. Um, but ultimately, ultimately, especially in the short run, we're working with contractual systems which are fixed price, fixed budget. We work within those constraints, but then we just start layering the um, the, the the contractual things for for variation and start building variation into the process. So it starts really at the at the contractual stage to start building that in to make sure that they're healthy outcomes for the customer and for um, our firms as we engage with them. So we want to create a healthy ecosystem where everyone's a winner, right? Okay, excellent. What about what about um, all this change from work from anywhere and remote and hybrid and decentralized teams? How do you think that affects um, working in sort of a more collaborative and even agile state? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, one thing that we've seen is a lot of culture deterioration due to COVID, where people are spending less face time together. New employees who are brought on board don't really feel uh, the people or the other culture in the organization. So what I'd say around that is that there's absolutely deterioration. When you can have people face-to-face in the same room, you know, working together all week, it, it, it's a huge, huge uplift. Um, we can't do exactly that, but we can replicate that by having people with their video cameras on. It's actually a measure of psychological safety. People have their video cameras on, people are feeling psychologically safe and it's a safe environment. People want their cameras off. It means like, oh, there's no safety. So very quickly, you can tell, wait a second, what's going on with my environment? And making people turn the cameras on isn't going to increase safety level because people aren't feeling safe enough to turn it on. So it's a larger uplift, but you can start by turning your camera on as a leader. That'd be it. And inviting others who feel comfortable to do so, right? Not making them do it, but, um, and so starting, starting there, but we can have our cameras on. We can have a, a video chat thing running and working on something together if we choose to. The biggest challenge is that people have not learned distributed collaboration activities and how to do that effectively while remote. It's not, it's not very complex. It's like, well, you get a Google Doc or some other shared surface or you know, shared writing surface where you can co-create together or you do a desktop sharing. You've got video running because... Um, I've been working with people for, I think it's 20 years now, collaborating with people all over the world. There's no limitation for distance. You just need to learn the tools. It's not rocket science. Thank you for that. So it's it's the willingness. And so I wanted to, you know, kind of of, as we start to close here, um, if, if we zoom out a bit, and we're thinking about like agile organizations, agile leadership styles, and, and you know, what, what, what is that? And if I'm a leader in a leadership team and I want to become more agile, what, what do you recommend as the first steps? And I know you mentioned individually wanting to do yeah. that, but, but but what does it yeah. look like to be an agile organization? Yeah. And, and what do I do to start becoming that? All right. So some people who have, have obtained a, uh, an education called an MBA, Masters of Business Administration, which tells you how to administer an organization. It tells you how to run a traditional hierarchical organization. What's needed to create business agility, what's needed to create high performance is leadership. So what people actually need is the equivalent of a master's of business leadership. So there's a whole educational series needed to shift, not just doing, how do we, what patterns, what tools and so on, models and so on, but we need to shift in our mindset and our consciousness of how we see ourselves and how we see others. 
Um, we refer to this in our work. Uh, we write a lot about this in our book, Leading Beyond Change. Um, and the term we use is what we call evolutionary leadership, which is which moves beyond servant leadership, moves beyond transformation leadership. And certainly uh, evolutionary leadership is very simple. It's, it's the choice to evolve oneself and develop the capabilities needed to evolve an organizational system. It's very, very simple. So it really starts with the choice. Do you know whether if you're a leader, do you choose to invest in your own evolution? And do you choose to learn the capabilities needed to evolve your organization? If you do, success awaits you because you're going to show up as a different leader and you're going to know how to help evolve your organizational system. So agile is just kind of like baby talk. It's not going to give business agility. It's not going to give a shift in leadership behavior. It's really just a very lightweight process approach that is useful in the right context. But there's, this is why we really try to help organizations stop doing agile. Because until there's a leadership mindset shift consciousness culture system, Agile is just going to hit a lot of conflict because it's trying to shift it to a different kind of culture and it's not powerful enough. We need to actually address culture directly. And that, and that, you know, that's a great point. And that's probably going to open the door to maybe a whole other podcast episode to kind of talk about that evolutionary leadership, which maybe we'll do, but, you know, I want to be respectful of, of your time and, and would you, you know, just talking about these subjects, I think is driving a lot of thought and maybe some creativity, how we can look at things. But, you know, as, as we close this episode, um, is there anything else, you know, you'd like to share or add related to agile or sort of evolving the way we, we think about work as, as a way to sort of improve in performance, you know, internally and externally. Yeah. So uh, agile is an extraordinarily powerful technology, innovation and invention, and it will demand of you that you upgrade the leadership, you upgrade the organizational culture, the environment to one that will actually serve your people serve your customers, and serve your profits. Excellent. Thank you. Well, how, how can folks, listeners, get in touch with you to learn more about you, what you're doing, and Shift 314, and even about the book? Yeah, so probably the, the best place to learn about us is our website, shift314.com, or you can find our book, Leading Beyond Change, uh, on your favorite uh, book supplier, either as a, a physical book or uh, Kindle or audiobook. All right. And I'll, I'll make sure that we have links to the, to the show notes, uh, links to those in the show notes. Um, well, Michael, I want to thank you so much for coming in um, and sharing with us uh, about agile, agile design, and, and what that could look like both in sort of our project level and, and even sort of making the shift on a leadership level. Um, so I really appreciate it. And I look forward to chatting with you more. Well, thank you so much for having me. That was fun. All right. Have a great day. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please also share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to continue to get us established. And I truly appreciate that. And it also helps to get the word out to others so that together, we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. 
Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.